0: Le stack glass, le before est sont chouette, Les avis pétantes et super, une fête Je pense que c'est effectively cool Je pense que c'est effectively wild Effectivement sauvage Effectivement sauvage Hello and welcome to episode 2027 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rally of Fangraphs and I'm joined as always by Ben Limberg of The Ringer. Ben, how are you?
1: I'm doing well. How are you? I'm all right. Well, we have reached the halfway point of the 2023 regular season. Sort of snuck up on us, maybe sort of snuck up on a lot of people. Here on this podcast, we consider the first half, or at least I consider the first half to be the literal first half of the schedule, as opposed to pre-All-Star break. All-Star break, it's a handy way to distinguish between a before and after, but it's not halves. It's just not. I'm sorry. It's, it's uh, somewhat close to halves, but it's not halves, so we can be more precise. We are exactly halfway, I, I guess, just infinitesimally past the halfway point we have had. 1,216 of the scheduled 2,430 regular scene games, so that's uh, 50.04% of the way through the season. We couldn't be any closer to the halfway point as we record on Friday, so figured we could do a little state of the season or retrospective on the first half for at least part of this episode, but it's a, a milestone. We should mark it.
0: Yeah, like here we were trying to get people to stop using quarter pole incorrectly and a a graver, more pervasive misapplication of a word Mm -hmm. was just like sitting there the whole time.
1: It's tough. It's perpetuated by sites such as Fangraphs, I suppose, because if you look at first half, second half splits, it's going to give you pre and post All-Star break, right? So, yeah, (laughs) yeah, it would be maybe computationally more difficult. I don't know. Maybe it wouldn't, but it's kind of consistent to say it's the All-Star break every season except that the All-Star game is on different dates and at different percentages, so there's no perfect way to do it, but Let's be pedantic and say that we are halfway through the season, even though we just got the All-Star announcements. I did have one thing to bring up before we get to that. I was watching a couple just extremely pretty slides from the past day or two. Jose Ramirez stole home. Yeah, and it was. Did. It was really pretty, just a, a beautiful they slide. They lost
0: that game, didn't they?
1: Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> anyway. but that play was really nice. Yes. He sort of slid toward the outside of the plate and just got that hand in there. And then there is an even prettier slide that Ben Clemens wrote about, which was a Matt Vierling slide for the Tigers. And this one was just glorious. This He sort of – he was – Running to second, he doubled, and I don't know that he took an optimal path to the bag unless he had this whole thing planned out, but he sort of ran past it. He overslid almost and, and didn't even really touch the bag on the initial slide, and then he went past the bag, and then he managed to raise his hand over Marcus Semien's glove swipe. Like The ball definitely got there before Fearling did, and... Semyon just sort of put his glove where Verling's Body would have been if he had just done a standard slide, and instead, Verling did a up. Oh, now you see me. Now you don't. You can't catch me. I'm too fast. And he just uh, raised his hand, and then Semyon's hand and glove just swiped air, and Verling put his glove down. I'll link to this. It's uh, obviously more entertaining if you can watch it as opposed to hearing me describe it. Probably, but but these were both just beautiful slides, and it made me question. My personal hierarchy of highlights, because I've always thought that fielding highlights, defensive highlights were my favorite. I've said that in the past, probably, that I think hockey highlights might be my favorite highlights in all of sports. Just uh, watching pretty goals once you can sort of slow them down (laughs) enough to actually see what happened.
0: I was going to say, way to brag about being able to follow hockey.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but right next to that, right after that, 1A, if hockey highlights and scoring highlights are one, are catches, I think, in baseball. Those are just, you know, web gems are are my favorite, I've thought, historically. But now this is making me question everything, because a pretty slide actually might be better than a pretty catch, in my mind. It's close. But I just wanted to put this to you. If we say that there are five Main categories of highlights, putting aside just silly stuff and bloopers and uh, players embarrassing themselves in one way or another, but actually performance highlights where someone's doing something good, you could probably divide that into batting highlights, pitching highlights, fielding highlights throwing highlights you could include throwing within fielding but i'm going to say those are different things so fielding is like catching and throwing is throwing and then base running so batting pitching fielding throwing base running how would we collaboratively rank those highlights
0: um okay wait we have to talk about the fielding versus throwing <laughs> distinction that you're drawing here because some highlights are i guess well, maybe I phrase the question this way. Can highlights occupy multiple categories? I'm
1: going to say no. Because there
0: are fielding highlights that start as, oh, I've caught it. And then, oh, I've thrown it.
1: Oh well, yeah, so kind of a combo.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah. yeah. What do you do with that, Ben?
1: <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe those highlights are the best because they're combining multiple categories. But but if we had to separate it and keep it to only one category, that's, right. that's a cheat. You mm-hmm. could say like batting turns into base running, right? That Verling highlight, he well, had to get a hit to have the slide. But
0: Yeah, but I think that the... Distinction is clearer. I guess what descriptive yeah. power does separating throwing from fielding broadly give us? I'm being I'm just, pedantic about your pedantic no, you categories, like, we, a, we gotta like a like a really fun party guest.
1: Got to define the categories before we can rank them. Yeah, sure, I'm yeah. just I'm just fielding. To, obviously, it encompasses throwing. I mean, a, a fielder has to throw, but those are such different genres of highlight to me, Mm. like a, a catch and a throw. Those are just obviously one precedes the other, but they're completely different physical actions and they're such separate categories of highlights. Like you can see so many plays that are just a catch with no throw or just a throw with no catch or really like if you think of the great throwing plays, like some of them might include both, like Willie Mays, let's say, like a part of it was the catch and the throw. But but a lot of them are just like the UNS Cespedes or the Ichiro or some of those just like laser throws. Uh, it's hard for me even to remember what preceded them. It, it was just a hit, right? And they retrieved it and it wasn't even a, a catch or a spectacular catch or anything. So those just seem like different sort of skills to me. They use different parts of your body, different tools. So you could be great at catching and not so great at throwing and vice versa. So maybe it's arbitrary, but it, it gives us five categories at least, which is satisfying. So if if we were to separate those, I, I see your point. But
0: I'll grant the premise. I'm just, mm-hmm. you know, I'm probing, I'm asking questions yeah. about mm-hmm. um, the, the nature of the categories, if only so that I can understand how we distinguish them and thus rank them appropriately.
1: If you could include both under the umbrella of fielding, if fielding got catching and throwing, I think that's an easy number one. I mean, th- that's your stacked at that point, right? Because right. those are two of the best kinds of highlights. So I think if we separate them, maybe it's more competitive. Maybe there's a less obvious number one overall.
0: So like, what's your, what's your number one is the... the I
1: I would have said Fielding that fielding. historically has been – and by fielding, I mean just catching. I just – I love a good catch. I love a home run robbery. I love a – just a laying out just a, a shoe top catch. I love just a Superman flying to the side lateral catch. I love a over the head no-look kind of catch, a Jim Edmonds. Uh, there's just so, you know, running up the wall, running through the wall, coming in, going back. There's so many just incredible. And that's maybe the most obvious display of athleticism in some kinds of athleticism at least. So I think fielding slash catching, that has been my number one. I'm just, I'm questioning it now that I'm I'm seeing so many beautiful slides, like a, a Really beautiful slide combines a lot of different types of athleticism too. I, I guess fielding—you you probably get tags with fielding. I mm. think because that's not throwing, so fielding probably gets to <laughs> sure. gets to catch, gets to count tags too, and a, a pretty tag, a Javi Baez type tag, that can be great too. Although I think avoiding a tag is more satisfying than applying a tag. Even if it's really applying a pretty tag, it's it's still better to do the, like, defying gravity, like jumping over the glove or sliding over the part of the plate that is uncovered or doing a deke and confusing the fielder. That, to me, is is still better than just tacking, I think.
0: Here's a thing for us to consider. Like, how much does the relative rarity of the highlight matter? Hmm versus the aesthetic quality, shall we mm-hmm. say, of mm-hmm. the highlight, right? Because bounty works against pitching highlights and hitting highlights for that matter because yes. we have we have such a volume of them. Even even the really spectacular ones seem to occur more often than, you know, a really, really wonderful slide or even Mm -hmm. a great tag or a throw. I, you know, I still am uncomfortable with the distinction we're drawing here. (laughs) I feel like we're separating out little throws in a way that we don't really need to. But, but even still, I think Mm -hmm. that it is a rarer event. And so that, that does sort of drive a, um, uh, an appreciation for it that like, a really well-struck stru- home run maybe even doesn't because yes, I get that there is a difference between, say, you know, a wall scraper and something that's, like, uh, ten rows deep and something that leaves the ballpark, right? Or, mm-hmm. like, I think that my favorite genre... I don't know if I'm going to stand by this statement, but I'm going to try it out and see how it feels. I, I wonder if my favorite genre of home run highlight isn't even the like exiting the ballpark one, although that is so satisfying, but like the big clang on something Mm -hmm. (laughs) home run, you know, like when it's running into something, it's Mm -hmm. almost more satisfying, right? Like the, whenever anything hits the Western metal supply company Mm. facade at Petco, like, that's great. Or like if it clangs off a, a, a foul pole, but stays fair or it, it thunks against a, a scoreboard. Those ones, they're like, there's something mm-hmm. extra to them. But I think that if a if a home run doesn't leave the ballpark or almost leave the ballpark, you get diminishing highlight returns on even the ones that are like really rocketed out there. You know, mm-hmm. once you've cleared the like first five, ten rows threshold of a home run, uh, you know you you really have to do something for it to be like, whoa.
1: Right, yeah. Sam used to argue that home runs are the most overrated highlight or the least interesting highlight, I guess because of the lack of suspense. Uh, It's gone, you know it's gone. You just uh, watch it go unless it's just a wall scraper, right? So I don't totally agree with that. I think that's maybe a, a minority opinion as I think he has conceded, but I see the point. It's just such an impactful play that it's exciting in the moment whenever it happens because, hey, a run scored, maybe multiple runs scored, but it's true watching it after the fact. It's not always uh, super exciting unless it's like an edge case or it's just a titanic clout that you just marvel at, as you said, if it leaves the stadium or something. So, yeah, I wouldn't say even necessarily that a home run is the most exciting batting highlight, although... If you talk about other exciting batting highlights, like triples, let's say. Well, is that actually an exciting batting highlight? Not really, right? It's an exciting base running highlight, mm. I think. Which, again, mm-hmm. it comes down to, can we draw that distinction? But the actual hitting of the triple is not all that interesting. It. it might not even look off the bat any different from a double right it's just that the base runner and you know maybe sometimes it's the fielder screwing up but it's the the running part of that that's so exciting i guess you could say the same about bunting potentially i think a a well-executed bunt is nice is aesthetically pleasing but it also does come down to can you beat it out right and that's more of a base running so again it's hard to maybe draw these distinctions, but but you're right that some of these are scarcer than others. Although, obviously, if we're just thinking of the genre, I guess we don't need to consider that. If you look up your favorite base running highlights or your favorite fielding highlights, uh, you're going to get plenty of them, even if they are fewer and further between.
0: I think that my answer involves base running now. I think that mm-hmm. at as we sit here today, my answer is base running highlights are my favorite, but yeah. I'm not letting go of the scarcity idea. I do think that that a, a lot of that has been appreciating those singular moments more in an era of lower stolen bass rolls. And you don't have to steal a base to have an exciting base running highlight. To be clear, like you, you, those are not the Venn diagram isn't a perfect circle, mm-hmm. and. I do think that a lot of them take place within the context of, like, base stealing. So I think we're going to see more cool stuff, which is exciting, but maybe diminishes the individual value of any given mm-hmm. base running highlight. Mm-hmm. But as we sit here today, I think base running probably, and then maybe f- f- fielding um, in its amalgam,
1: mm-hmm. including yeah.
0: tags. And then probably, probably... uh Hitting and then pitching. Why do we have to choose between our children? You know, that's a question we could ask ourselves also. <laughs>
1: yeah. Wouldn't want baseball to be devoid of any one of these categories. But I I am leaning that way too. Base running. I think base running maybe has leapfrogged fielding for me. And maybe it is because there's just more base stealing going on, which means more fun slides. So, I'm going to go base running number 1 assuming that that I can count the base running component of hits, right? If if hitting highlights, batting highlights are what happens in the batter's box and base running is everything after that.
0: I think I think that that's fair. Here's here's maybe part of why I just to return to my previous comment. Like, you know, I think that the way we want to think about them is like how are they defined in terms of role, right? So, like, we have hitters, we have base runners, we have pitchers, we have fielders, you know, mm-hmm. and like all of those. Now, there are times when, in the rule book, I think they're described as the runner-hitter, but like mm-hmm. that's because the rule book wants to be popular with Gen Z and embrace the notion of a liminal space. You know, mm-hmm. that's really mm-hmm. what's motivating that.
1: Yeah, right, or, no. or batter runners, yeah, but right, batter that,
0: runner, yeah, yeah.
1: So, so we're we're sort of artificially separating those perhaps here. But I think I'm going base running and then I'm going fielding because a great catch is still great. And then I'm I'm thinking throwing or pitching, right? Those are sort of the same action, except that one I'm talking about pitchers and one I'm talking about defenders, other defenders, fielders who are not pitchers, non-pitcher fielders, very clear. I'm talking about uh, non-player Position, non pitcher position players (laughs) obviously have to define this uh, in great detail. Throwing to a base, throwing someone out. Yeah. Catchers, too. We're getting more base stealing attempts. And so we we get more throws from catchers like Bo Nailer's incredible play. Oh, yeah. This uh, That was, I guess, a a catch and then a throw, but the fact that he got the throw off and that it was a successful throw, if people didn't see this, I will link to this too, but it was a pitch out, which is a great rarity these days, but the throw just sailed, and he had to reach up and stab to catch it and then do a spin and basically like a no-look, (laughs) no-scope throw to second and somehow got Nikki Lopez, that was an incredibly athletic play. So that was great. I think I'm going to go pitching third, though. Just like, you know, the whole pitching gif culture. Maybe there's just too much of it now, but. There's too much of it now. Yeah. But there are a lot of really pretty pitches. Pitches, just they move so much these days. And I like the reactions that the pitchers have after a whiff, after a strikeout. Like a, a slow-mo. And, and then you get like an occasional knuckleball, which is beautiful. You get the the spin rate, the ultra-slow-mo rotation on these things and the overlays and everything. So I, I think probably I'm going to go pitching and then throwing. A great throwing highlight is is great, but probably the scarcest of all of these, right? Which maybe makes it more special, but also means you're just not going to get as many. Most throws just aren't that close, aren't that competitive. And then batting, yeah, I think batting highlights would be at the bottom for me. I, I still still like them, still like batting. Definitely need to keep batting. But uh I would I'd rather watch a montage of all the other kinds of highlights probably before batting highlights if we're stripping out the rest of the play, essentially, what happens after the actual swing and the contact.
0: I think that's defensible. I mean, look, they're all good. They're highlights. It's like mm-hmm. in the name right there. But mm-hmm. I think that I think that that's defensible. Maybe I'm persuaded.
1: Okay. All right. Well, let us know if your rankings differ or if you quibble with our categories.
0: (laughs) Listeners are going to be like, I'm definitely going to email them to quibble so they talk about the subtle (laughs) distinctions between these categories more because what we really need is that. (laughs)
1: Right. Yeah. We broke it down into five very broad categories here, and perhaps that was too many as it was, but you could break it down even further. I mean, each of these uh, five categories could have subcategories. You could talk about which types of throws are best and which types of catches are best and which uh, types of uh, base running plays are best. It's just a a whole wealth of highlights out there that we could classify, perhaps on a future episode. But we have established the broad parameters here. All right. So we're halfway through the season, and I guess we can do a few things here. I, I have compiled some stats on the teams that have... Fallen furthest short of their projections and uh, outplayed their projections by the most. And then I have done the same for players. So I guess you could call those the surprise and disappointing teams and players. But maybe we could also just broadly discuss the best storylines of the first half of the season so far. All of which we obviously will have spent a good amount of time talking about. But... Is there kind of uh, a defining story of the first half for you, or a, yeah. a highlight? Not in the way that we were just talking about highlights, but in terms of uh, throwing <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> narrative highlights.
0: I I think that for me, um, and you know, we've we've already talked at length about like how um, surprising or um, or whatnot these individual teams are, and sort of the gradations between them. So I don't need to belabor that point. But I I really think that for me, it is the emergence, even if we don't expect sort of permanence in the case of all of them, of young, recently rebuilding clubs sort of taking a step forward and not just being in wildcard contention, but often leading their divisions and really sort of staking out a a spot for themselves in the competitive landscape. I think that, Mm -hmm. I think we do want there to be like Consistent powerhouses season over season. I think that there is narrative value within the sport to the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Astros of it all, the the Braves of it all. Right. I think that you want that as part of your sort of narrative engine to your understanding of baseball. And I think that those um, teams being consistently very good over the years has sort of other value to the sport in terms of how you know, aspiring clubs think about team building and spending and whatnot. And I think the the race should probably be on that list. Excuse me, race. Sorry, Jeff. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. You don't listen to Pat anymore. But no, sorry. Not. <laughs> um, it's not like a pointed thing. It's just he's busy. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I also think that as we've discussed before, like part of what fuels continued interest in the sport is having a sense, however – you know, sort of wispy and in and, and sort of fleeting it might be at times. But having a sense if you're a fan of a club that isn't one of those pillars, that your team can be in it, that you can spend your way or draft your way or develop your way toward a competitive roster. And having real evidence of that churn, I think is is valuable. and it's it's exciting. Like we talk every off season as we approach opening day about how like we, we have the the preseason projections and we tend to get a lot of things right at least directionally when it comes to those but it would be really boring if we had a perfect sense of what the season is going to look like on opening day and so it's good for there to be surprise and movement and energy and i think particularly when you look at a team like say the reds where the offseason narrative around their ownership group was such a bummer for their fans, right? To have a young, exciting team for that, you know, fan base to to get invested in and hopefully to see like the benefit that fielding a good team can have for clubs. Is is good and positive, and so you know I'm sure that if you're a fan of the Cardinals or the Mets or the the Padres, you're kind of bummed right now. That might be pretty <laughs> mildly <laughs> yeah. um, that your that your teams have not really played to expectation. But I think that it is good for the sport for there to be upstarts, mm-hmm. and I think that Chris Gilligan wrote for us this week about sort yeah. of where we sit um, as we approach the the half season mark at the time he wrote that we were approaching. We were, we were, (laughs) we were approaching. We weren't there yet. But as we kind of got close to the all-star break, like, you know, there's definitely a a range of, of in it that clubs are, but like, I think he found something like 20 teams that were still ostensibly in it to some degree or other. That's valuable. You know, I think that keeps people engaged and uh, that's my, I think that's Mm -hmm. my thing. Like, good job marlins and (laughs) reds and i am not surprised by the diamondbacks i was a believer all along although i wasn't i did not believe that they were gonna you know be in first place in the division come june 30th so maybe i should have um gone a little harder there you know Mm -hmm. good job orioles uh rangers right i think that it's it's a good thing it's a valuable Mm -hmm. thing so
1: yeah That, I think, is probably my top story of the first half as well. I don't know exactly what to call it, but parity or unpredictability or mobility when it comes to team performance. It's just there's almost a zero correlation currently between payroll rank and winning percentage rank. It's below 0.1. There's essentially no connection there. And that's because of some teams with high payrolls that have underperformed. And it's also because of some teams with low to middling payrolls that have overperformed. And because of that, you have this big jumble because a lot of the teams that were supposed to be really good have not been good. Now they haven't been disasters. They haven't been the A's, but they've been a lot worse than they were supposed to be. And then teams that weren't supposed to be so good, they've been better than they were supposed to be. And so everyone's kind of together to some extent here. And that gives you a lot to talk about, a lot of surprises, some disappointing surprises, some unwelcome surprises, and some really exciting surprises. And I was going to mention that piece by Chris Gilligan, too, because uh, compared to last year, probably compared to most years, there just are more teams in it. And that's partly a function of the expanded playoffs, but I think it certainly even compared to last year, it's, it's striking just how high a percentage of the games these days are being played between teams that are contenders as of now, right? And I don't know what that's going to mean for the trade deadline. I could imagine that that means that the trade deadline will be more active. It could be a lot less active because everyone's in it in theory, right? But there are teams like the Mets and the Cardinals that are at least seemingly entertaining, being sellers surprisingly depending on how July goes right so we might end up with like the teams that were supposed to be good aren't good but they're not terrible and so they're still theoretically in it and just because of the expectations they're not going to want to take away from that and tear it down and and wave the white flag and so they might sort of hold and then the teams that are surprising they're going to want to be upgrading but where are they going to get those upgrades so I I could see it just turning into like a really interesting trade deadline where a lot of players and, and teams do things that we wouldn't have expected but it could also be a totally stagnant deadline but that's something I'm looking forward to finding out in the second half but Yeah, that has been, I think, one of the bigger stories of of the first half. And I think we thought we knew coming into the season that we weren't going to see any super teams in the way that we have for the past several seasons. And I think that's been borne out kind of. Now, there are still teams that are on pace for super team type win totals, right? I mean, the Rays are on pace for, I think, 108 wins. The Braves are on pace for 107 wins. If you go by the projections at Fangrass, which take into account how those teams have done, but also how they were and are projected to do, only the Braves right now are projected to get to triple digits. Their win total projection is 100.6. The Rays are at 97.8. And then it's a pretty steep fall off to the Dodgers at 91.5. So the teams like the Dodgers and the Astros that have been so good for so long, they're still obviously contending and and likely playoff teams, but they are clearly diminished and more vulnerable. And I guess the, the Braves would probably be the the closest to a super team that we have, like they're just stringing together a ton of division titles, but they're not usually, I mean, we were seeing teams win, you know, 106 and 107, 111 games, right? I, I don't know if anyone's going to get there this year. So there are fewer teams that I I look at and think, wow, that is like an all-time great team. That team is going to be extremely difficult to beat. So, the Braves and the Rays, they've sustained their success for a long time, but I feel like they have more holes than some of the super dominant teams that we've seen in in recent years, and that's probably a good thing.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's a good thing. And I I so you know, we've had a bunch of seasons with these like powerhouse super teams where they're putting up win totals, you know, 100, 105, 110 wins, right? I think that there's the piece of that that is those clubs and those rosters being really, really good at baseball. And then there's the part of it where they are able to play. I mean, not the A's every year, right? Or a team as bad as the A's every year. Although even the A's are not as bad now as they were at the beginning of the season. They're still really bad. Um They're still so, so really bad. Um, But – we tended to focus on the top end of the super team distribution and didn't mm-hmm. always acknowledge like how much or maybe not much is is too much but mm-hmm. what portion of that win total was attributable to just like really garbage rosters at the bottom of the of that distribution right mm-hmm. and i feel like we're you know if we can avoid the bottom being so bad it's naturally going to curtail some of the the high highs at the top but like that's okay i don't want everyone to try to manage to like an 87 win season because that has its own problems but i do think that if we're pulling up the bottom somewhat like it's it's good for as many people as possible to be able to watch like respectable baseball like that's mm-hmm. that's something that philosophically we should aim toward
1: so the topsy turviness of the standings and these uh, exciting upstarts and also these train wreck teams that lead to a lot of rubbernecking all of that has been fun to watch and and to talk about other than for the fans of the train wreck teams but for for the rest of us i guess for the neutrals also so that's i think one of the big things Obviously, the new rules, one of the huge stories of the season to such an extent that maybe everyone's sick of talking about them, but we like them. We've analyzed them a lot. There was a ton of intrigue about how they would play, and mostly they have been successes or at least have not done great harm to the game and in some cases uh, seem to have been boons to baseball. So. It was an experiment that we have not seen the likes of in Major League Baseball for quite a while now to make such sweeping changes in a single season. And there was some disaster potential, I suppose, and it has been far from a disaster. The games are shorter, they move much faster, and there's a lot of excitement on the basis, as we just covered in our little highlights ranking there. That has maybe made me shake up the the top placement on my highlights ranking so that's been a huge part of the season and for the most part a success so i can't can't ignore the new rules Uh, we've talked about them so much that it's almost like we don't talk about them so much on a day-to-day basis anymore but but that's a good thing that it hasn't run off the rails in such a way that we're lamenting those things we're we're celebrating them
0: yeah, I agree. And I think that, you know, the fact that it didn't occur to us as, like, the very first thing is a testament to it working maybe the the way we really wanted it to, right? Mm-hmm. Because the worst version of this would have been that it is highly noticeable and feels disruptive to your experience of watching the game. And I, that has not been, no. I, I think, the experience even in instances where you do see a pitch clock violation and you know you're reminded like oh that's happening differently that moment is proceeding differently than it would have in a previous season the mm-hmm. fact that it has like worked and then we have just sort of moved on is like good this all mm-hmm. this this worked
1: have you noticed that Craig Kimbrell has ten pitch clock violations. What?
0: Yeah. He, he also, has more than
1: any other pitcher and obviously does not throw nearly as many pitches as many other pitchers. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I, also, Ben, what's up mm-hmm. with what's up with the race? You notice all these um mm. the, the the race. They have they seem like they have a lot of a lot of violations. The race. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Interesting. I don't know. I'm just, I'm tickled by Kimbrel just basically being like, I don't care. I'm just going to keep doing my thing. He still does his like peering in for the sign thing, yeah. which uh, these days, uh, I don't know if he's a pitch user or not. It seems like he yeah. just, he just wants to do that. He's like, yeah, I'm in my mid thirties. Like I'm not going to change at this point. So this is, this is who I am. So like on a rate basis, he's got like a violation every 58 pitches, which maybe doesn't sound like. So much, but it is a lot compared to other players. He's the first pitcher to get to double digits for timer violations, and he's a reliever, right? So it it seems to be working for him of late, but he's just like, yeah, yeah, whatever, shake it off. I'm just going to do my thing. You can call me for a violation if you want. But yes, there are very few players who have triggered those things with that kind of regularity. So that is a relief. Not a huge surprise, but still a relief. So, new rules, standings. I do think that along with the positives of the standings that we were just talking about in the team-level results, there are some negatives that have also been notable. Obviously, the A's have been one of the biggest stories of the first half of the season, right? Not a good story, but how much have we talked about them? A lot for multiple reasons. One, because of the... Ongoing Las Vegas exodus and the whole ballpark saga and the reverse boycott and just the enmity toward Fisher and Rob Manfred bad-mouthing A's fans and defending Fisher and just all of that has been swirling around the season, in addition to the fact that the A's look like one of the worst teams of all time. So there's been a lot of tracking of Wow, their run differential is still on pace to be by far the worst, right? And their record has rivaled some of the worst teams of all time. So gotta gotta say the A's are one of the stories of this season. Just not an uplifting story, and a infuriating story, a frustrating story, a depressing story, but also one that we have returned to time and time again.
0: Yeah, I think that we don't we shouldn't mischaracterize the season. It hasn't all been good i mean i guess we can add into that category sort of the the league um uh, i have such a rude way of describing this and i'm not gonna do it you know i'm not because why make shane bleep a thing you know why make <laughs> him bleep a thing when i could just say it differently um tripping over itself uh when mm-hmm. it comes to pride is that neutral mm-hmm. enough mm, yeah you can mm-hmm.
1: say. yeah also i think the centrals. Yeah. The Central's have been a big story this season. Just the mediocrity of them, which is not totally separate from the positive aspects of what we were just talking about, which is a lot of teams in contention, theoretically. Right. Part of that is just that a lot of Central teams are lousy, but none of them is good. And so even the lousy ones are still in the running. So, that would be the counter to, hey, everyone's in it, is that a lot of those teams are just bad, and no one seems to want to win those divisions, really. But I think it's still nice to have some parity and competition, even if it's between not-so-great teams. And some of those not-so-great teams are fun, even though they're not great, great teams. But the Reds, obviously, are, are one of the most fun teams of the season, and they're in the Central. So, There's that, and then there's the Cardinals being one of the disaster teams of the season, and there was, at least for a while, hey, the Pirates, uh, good vibes around the Pirates for a while. Now, that has subsided somewhat, but there are encouraging aspects of the Pirates' season. So, the Central's just blandness in terms of their actual records and the lack of separation there, and how many times have we compared... The AL East to the Central's and the worst AL East team is better than the best AL Central team, right? And the (laughs) orders of their records line up that way. So that's been a big talking point and, and justifiably so. But again, maybe not the best that there's such a mismatch there that it seems like the Central's are kind of outclassed year after year.
0: Yep, I think that's definitely on there. I would I would maybe throw in and it doesn't have to just be rookies necessarily, but like the young the you know, I think there's a a group of really exciting young guys who are in part helping to drive the Surprising performance of some of yep. these clubs, and so maybe yep. it's maybe I'm double dipping, right? But mm-hmm. your Ellie De La Cruz, is your Corbin Carols, Corbin Lee's—I like, hope your shoulders okay. Yes, me oh, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um,
1: yeah, I actually had sort of as a, a separate entry, National League phenoms. Right? Yeah, I, they're not all in the National League, but no, but a the lot most of them exciting, more. yeah, Carol and De La Cruz and Yuri Paris are pr- probably for me the three most exciting. Rookies and they're all in the national League, so not to slight all of the other excellent uh, american league players but but those three are probably the pinnacle for me so far,
0: yeah, I think that it's just incredibly exciting, you know, you have the sort of season long continuing sustained excellence of Carroll, and then you know guys who come up a little bit later but really hit the ground running, and we're gonna see like how. Ellie kind of adapts now that the the league is adapting to him and so we get to see that phase sort of coming through but I think it's very exciting, you know, as we look at these these young guys. Um I here's here's a less fun one, but probably mm-hmm. one that we should mention is the the injury um yeah. stuff. It it seems like we have Oh gosh, I like hesitate to even <laughs> jinx it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> um, but you know, we we seem to have a a slower pace. Um, mm-hmm. but the early part of the season at least strongly yes. defined by the concern over injuries and, and trying to sort out, you know, how much of that might be the new rules, but just the the rate of attrition, particularly on the pitching side, was like mm-hmm. very dramatic for a while there.
1: Yeah. We have not talked about that as often lately which is great <laughs> i would yeah. love to continue not to talk about that but there was a while there where every other episode we were lamenting the yeah. latest walking wounded everyone seemed to be dropping like flies and then there was concern about why that was happening and is it pitch clock related but the most recent figures i saw it, it seems like it has subsided to the point where this season is not really an outlier it was just it was like spring training and early in the year and those things have uh, fortunately fallen back to earth bit. But yes, that was definitely a a part of the conversation. And then we haven't really talked about individuals so much other than those rookies and phenoms, but I think there are three players.
0: No other other individuals (laughs) that we've ever spent any amount of time on.
1: On this podcast. Uh But I think there are three players whose individual seasons have been intriguing enough that they have become among the best stories of the season to me. And Corbin Carroll and Ellie and, and Yuri Perez like they're up there, but it's not like they're chasing some particular statistical milestone or there's like some record chaser or something unprecedented necessarily. It's all that they're really good, I, I guess. Uh, Perez has had a almost uh, record setting start when it comes to ERA over his first nine starts, right? But I gotta put. Otani, obviously, and then Luisa Rise and his chase for 400, which will ultimately probably be futile, but not futile because uh, it's given us a lot of entertainment every day, right? I think players who make me check their box scores on a daily basis, right? And Otani, I'm probably watching on a daily basis, so I don't need to check the box score. But if I missed his game, I would want to know, what did Otani do? And if I didn't see the marlins game i would want to know how many hits did Luis rise have and then i think i would put ronald acuna in that category for just because he is his power speed combo i mean it's it's pretty special and so i had that i thought bold prediction at the start of the season he'll go 50 50 he is ahead of the stolen base pace and behind the power pace although the power pace has picked up, I think. Like, it would not surprise me at all if he were to hit more home runs in the second half than he did in the first. But even if he falls short of 50 homers, we're still talking about a a possible 40-70 season or something. Forget 40-40, like 40-70. And I think if it were just 40-40, it would be exciting, but you'd have to discount it slightly because stolen bases are up considerably. But if he blows by 40 stolen bases then you don't even really need to caveat it. If he gets to 40, 60 or 40, 70 or something, then you could say, yeah, he would have gotten to 40 anyway. So his combination of power and speed as a probable MVP favorite, I think he's up there. That that trio has uh, kind of defined the season when it comes to individual play for me.
0: I I support that. And it it doesn't take
1: that many guys having – Spectacular seasons like that to make that a special component of the year like we've lamented the the lack of record chases and interesting legendary records being broken but if there's even just one guy going for something like that if there's Aaron Judge last year, trying at least to exceed 60 and 61, then that's riveting. That is something that's going to keep your attention on the game every day. If Shohei Otani is trying to top himself and have some unprecedented, unbelievable two-way season, that's obviously something that's going to keep me glued to the game every day. And then you have uh, one Luisa Rise making a run at 400. You have uh, one Ronald Cooney. It's not like you need many players who are having some sort of outlier season, if you just have one or two, that's enough really to kind of dominate the conversation and give you a reason to tune in every day.
0: Yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, we just need the the long stretches where the action isn't necessarily great at the team level or the division level or whatever to be punctuated by really exciting individual performances and then we're pretty content, you know, mm-hmm. maybe we're too easy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, we're soft touches, I guess, when it comes to the sport. We like it, but I, I do think this has been a fun first half of the season. It's always hard for me to say that was a good season, that was a bad season, because they all contain multitudes, and there's always a lot of interesting stuff. There's so much that happens that it's almost hard for me to differentiate. They all have just more than you could possibly experience personally, and that's just an a embarrassment of riches every time, really, if you love baseball. But I think... This has been an above average first half of Major League Baseball, whatever that means. I don't know how to quantify that, but my gut feeling is that this has been good. This has been better than normal.
0: I think that that's right, even in the face of Manfred driven nonsense, um, mm-hmm. which is really saying something because boy, yeah. some of that
1: nonsense. Yeah, spent. he's been working overtime. Yeah. So so the, the team. Differences from the projections here. This won't be a great surprise based on the conversation we just had. But just looking at the change in projected final win total between the start of the season and now. So I'm not talking about pace. I'm talking about the projection for your final win total. How much has that moved since the season started? And on the plus side, you have the raise who have boosted their win total projection by 12.2. And then you have the Orioles at 11.9 and the Diamondbacks at 10.0 and the Reds at 9.2 and the Marlins at 8.2 and the Rangers at 7.9. We didn't talk so much about the Rangers earlier and they don't really fit into the, the low payroll category so much uh, they were sort of one of the teams that tried to win the off season and so often it seems like the team that kind of wins the off season does not win the season it ends up being a bit deflating but not in the Rangers case uh, you know things could still fall apart for them but it has been a, a really fun first half for them I mean they have like most of the AL all-star starters <laughs> yeah how about like that a, a lot of them deserved, some of them maybe not as deserved. Uh, look, Josh Young's having a good first half, but Jose Ramirez should probably be your all-star starter at third base. Uh, but hey, if Rangers fans are enthusiastic about their team and are stuffing the ballot box, then then bully for them. I'm glad they're <laughs> into baseball again. <laughs> so um, I think it's it's satisfying, though, to have a plan like that come together because it's a totally different... Plan. It's not really the Reds' plan or the Orioles' plan, which was uh, we were bad for a long time and we traded a lot of players and then we got good players back and we drafted some good players. And now the worm has turned and we're good again and we're calling up all our exciting young guys. The Rangers have some exciting young guys, but that's mostly not what it is, right? It's uh, the big investments that they made paying off, even with Jacob DeCrom getting hurt, acting sort of a year early when it came to Marcus Semien and Corey Seeger is really looking good now, because Corey Seeger has been incredible. He was hurt, obviously, but when he's been healthy, he's been amazing. Marcus Semyon having yet another excellent year, still probably underrated for how good he is and how durable he is. So it's that up the middle combo. And then, even if it's not DeGrom, it's uh, some of the pitchers that they signed as free agents have uh, panned out quite well. And It's also some guys who've uh, improved who are sort of surprising. Your Adeliz Garcias and your Jonah Himes and your Nathaniel Lowe's and all these other guys, some of whom had been okay before and and some who are just uh, exceeding everyone's expectations, Ezekiel Duran, et cetera. So that's been really fun too. So those are the top six teams that have raised their projected win total by the most and by some significant degree. And then on the downside you have the Royals, (laughs) the Royals at negative 15, their projected win total 15 wins lower now than it was when the season started. So by that metric, They are maybe the most disappointing team. I mean, they didn't have such high expectations, so maybe you can't be as disappointed, but relative to what was expected for them and the progress that people were hoping for, no, it's been bleak. So they have been even worse relative to expectations than the A's, believe it or not. The A's, negative 14.3. And then you have the Mets at 10.1 wins below, Cardinals at 10.0, Padres at 8.9 and White Sox at 5.1. Those are your your six most disappointing teams by a win total being lower now than it was when the season started. When we did the discussion recently about most disappointing team, we kind of landed on the Cardinals, right? But I I think since then... The Mets have passed them probably. They've passed them on this little leaderboard here barely. It's, it's close. It's it's neck and neck. But maybe the Mets, uh, if we're excluding the two truly terrible teams that have been abysmal but were never expected to be good in the Royals and the A's, then I think the Mets may have taken the lead. Although, man, the Padres and the Cardinals, they're keeping it competitive. there. <laughs> I keep, keep thinking one of these days they're going to look like they're supposed to look, and none of them has.
0: My answer changes every day. Which yeah. one is the most disappointing? Just because it feels like, and I am not, I am not here to say that this is a, a a feeling rooted in science, but doesn't it feel like at least one of these teams loses in like a devastating and or embarrassing way on any given night? Like it, it, it does, feels like yeah. they kind of trade off amongst them, <laughs> yeah. and so sometimes you're you're like, oh, surely it'll it'll get better, and then it doesn't it doesn't get better. I, I am grateful for the presence of the Rangers because um despite the fact that they're <sighs> making it hard for the Mariners to do anything, mm-hmm. but you know, you made your own bed, Mariners, now you got to mm-hmm. sleep in it. So mm-hmm. um but they are at least partially I think an important antidote to the narrative that I'm sure will emerge around the Mets and Padres about like spending. Who needs it? Right. Because the Rangers sure have been willing to do that. Now, of course, the thing that I, as a an honest interlocutor, have to reckon with is that, like, their biggest bit of spending this offseason, as opposed to the prior two, was a guy who needs Tommy John. So, mm-hmm. you know, like, yes, are we seeing the fruits of the Degrom signing? Um, not like we expected to, but you know, I do appreciate that this team has has spent. Very recently and um, to a great degree in a way that at least says, hey, you know, sometimes you make the big moves and you make them when they're available to you and then they were down to your benefit later. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I I think that that's honest while still making the point I want to hopefully. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, not that DeGrom's injury was the least foreseeable thing that could have happened. But (laughs) but yes. All right, and I guess I I should mention they didn't uh, crack this list of teams that have raised their projected win total by the most, but they were probably uh, one of the, the last cuts there. The Giants have really made that NL West race interesting. I certainly did not expect the Giants to be eight games ahead of the Padres at the end of June. And half a game back of the division leader, which I did not expect to be the Diamondbacks, but the Giants are are two and a half back of the Diamondbacks and two back of the Dodgers. And yet again, the NL West is just inscrutable and expectation-defying and dashing, right? And I guess part of that comes down to the Padres perennially just not being quite as good as it seems like they should be. But. Always seems to be, it's like, we think it's going to be a three-team race, and then it's a two-team race, and it's a team that no one foresaw being in the race, or this year, so far, it's a three-team race, and the Padres are not one of those teams, (laughs) so it definitely keeps us guessing. It throws us for a loop. I'm enjoying the NL West these days. I guess what is not unforeseen is that the Dodgers are not atop the division and are not the dominant Dodgers of old. That was one of the expected storylines coming to the season. It's just that people presumed that the Padres would be the team to take advantage of that. And thus far, it has not been. I have a list also of the players who have exceeded their Mm. projections by the most or fallen the furthest short of them. So what I did for this was I I looked at the preseason depth charts projections. So that's a combination of Zips and Steamer. And then I pulled the actual wins above replacement thus far this season. And then I just kind of uh, compared and I took the projection from the start of the season. And then I took into account how many games each player's team had played and just looked for the difference between what their war is now and what you would have expected their war to be over this number of games Based on their preseason projection. So I will note that there were a few notable players who did not have depth charts projections. Maybe they had steamer projections, but not zips or something. So they don't show up here. But guys like Matt McLean, Patrick Bailey, Jose Caballero, Zach Neto, those guys uh, are you know, one win or more and uh, did not actually have projections. So they would uh, not show up here, but, you know, they should be mentioned, I guess, and, and Tanner Bybee as well. But I don't think they would crack the top of this list, even if they had had projections. So I'll give you the disappointing guys first, I guess. So, So the player who has fallen the furthest short of his projection prorated thus far is Gene Segura. So despite the fact that the Marlins have exceeded expectations, Gene Segura would have been expected to have 1.5 war at this point, and he actually has negative one. (laughs) So that's a a difference of 2.5 war from where the projections saw him being at this point in the season. Number two, Tim Anderson. Right. Tim Anderson has been part of those uh, disappointing White Sox, so he is 2.4 war short of his projection. Kike Hernandez is next, 2.3 war short. Colton Wong mm-hmm. is also 2.3 war short. I, mm-hmm. I liked that. Pickup, and there has not been a lot to like about that pickup since no. the season started. I thought, thought he'd be good for them. I, I, I thought he was underrated. I was like, oh, yeah, okay. You could have spent big on someone, but trading for Colton Wong, that's a, a nice, handy little move there. And he's been almost a wind below replacement level. Yeah, it's so that's, been pretty bad. It's, it's not great, yeah. <laughs> and then Jose Abreu, a notable slow starter. Yeah, he geez. is... Uh, wins below his projection and is still well below replacement level. Jose Miranda of the Twins, 2.2 wins below. Alec Manoa, a notable kind of uh, collapse this season. He is 2.1 war below where he would have been expected to be. Carlos Correa of the Twins is also about 2.1 war below. After the offseason frenzy, the Carlos Correa sweepstakes the three teams that thought they had signed him initially, and I guess the first two are probably not too sad to have missed out on him. It hasn't been an ankle problem as far as we know. It's been foot problems and other performance problems, but yeah, I guess I don't want to say dodged a bullet like he's been better of late and he may well be better over the rest of the season, but... The ratio of, of how much we talked about him over the off season to how much we've talked about him this season. It's uh, a very high one because he just has not given us a lot of reasons to talk about him.
0: There are some on there that make more sense than others, right? Like, mm-hmm. I didn't think that it would happen like this, but like Jose Abreu, older player, right? You, yeah. you can see sort Something of- Something perce- of a power
1: outage last season. Too. Right, and- yeah. s-
0: Right. And so you can sort of recast the last year he's had and, and look at it in a different way and say, hey, was this a, a signal that we kind of ignored because he was still producing and we were intrigued by like the shape of that production changing in a way that seemed like it might be cool and allow him to adapt? And it's like, no, turns mm-hmm. out maybe not. And then there are guys where it's just really a, a lot more surprising. Like the Manoa stuff is still mm-hmm. so wild. Did yep. you hear how his first um, start? Went?
1: Yeah, was it eleven runs uh, as he's down there? Try- yeah, I, I don't. Right, I don't know how much to read into that. Because, right, I was
0: gonna say, yeah. like you know, in a it, it, the idea of sending him down there seemed to be to sort of rework from the ground up, and so it yes. could be that that was, hey, throw that pitch like right. just that, and let's mm-hmm. see what we're working with, and then it got teed off on. Um, but yeah, it it's not you know it's not the best right mm-hmm. even if there is a developmental context that makes it make more sense and i don't to be clear no for sure that there is but you always want to be a little careful reading into those things but also boy it's easy to read into yeah. love and runs yeah. um the korea of it all man have we entertained the notion that he's cursed <laughs> like do we is there a small demon living in his leg
1: <laughs> it could be, yeah, uh, it, I guess one of his legs or some part of his lower body. maybe it's moving around in there,
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe mm-hmm. it's a it's a migratory demon,
1: yeah, could be. It's a small
0: yeah. migratory demon.
1: Mm-hmm. and
0: um, and that's you know, as good an explanation as any. So there's that piece of it. I wonder. Here here's a question I'd like to put to the um the Giants fans who listen to this podcast. How are you feeling? Like mm-hmm. where are you in your in your in your feelings right now? Because mm-hmm. at various points in the offseason, we were quite concerned for the um yeah. the emotional well being of Giants fans. And we felt like we had good cause. And I think we did. And there have been points in the early part of this season where it was like, Oh boy, oh boy, oh no. And now I would imagine I might might offer that like if you're a Giants fan you're like okay Mm -hmm. okay we're
1: yeah Aaron Judge is hurt Carlos Correa not playing so well and and not to
0: suggest that anyone in that fan base is like delighting in those misfortunes I'm not I'm not Mm -hmm. suggesting that you're you're trying to be nasty or anything but like it feels like it must have been – I bet you're all very tired is probably the, the primary feeling because being whipped around like that, um, yeah. highs and lows and everything in between, you're probably exhausted. I know yeah. I'm exhausted and I, I'm not even a Giants fan. So yeah. Yeah. I'll
1: read you the names of some other players who have notably uh, underperformed their projections.
0: Are you going say Julio at some point here?
1: Mm, we'll see. Mm. Tyler O'Neill,
0: mm. Ledmus yeah. Diaz,
1: Jerkson Profar, Raddy Telez. Kabir Ruiz, Ahmed Rosario, mm. Corey Kluber, Vlad, Vlad Jr. Yeah. Right? Maybe, hopefully, he's uh, starting to the power will pick up, but it has not been great. Yeah, Anthony Rendon, Jesse Winker, Luis Arias, <laughs> Yeah, Jesse First. Winker. I, I guess it was not the Mariners that that was the problem with Jesse Winker, or at, at least it, not only the Mariners. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Luis Arias, Byron Buxton, Will Myers. Austin Barnes, Nick Maaton, Ellie Horace Montero, Austin Nola, Manny Machado, Brandon Woodruff, Nick Lodolo, Kyle Schwarber, Starling Marte, Jake Cronenworth. I'm only gonna go to uh 1.5 war below projections here, but all of these guys are Jake Cronenworth, MJ Melendez, Corbin Burns, and Weird. Yeah, right. Yeah, so you have Woodruff and Burns here. Yeah. Obviously, Woodruff hurt. Burns just not really pitching like his old self. And then you've got uh, Machado on here and Cronenworth, some underperforming Padres. And then Julio Ries, Nolan Arnado, not having a, yeah. a typical Arnado season,
0: especially in the field.
1: Yeah. So those are. I'll put the full list online for for anyone who uh, wants to, but wants to see it. But Julio is actually only about half a win below, which yeah. is, I guess his projections maybe had not uh, fully bought into how great he seemed to be last year yet. So
0: I think that's right. Plus, like when <laughs> his center field defense, I think, is really helping to bolster mm-hmm. the profile there, and right. he's still. Hitting for some power, so. Yeah. Um, Although not, like, last year. It is funny, so you, like, Burns and Woodruff, like, underperforming, and then you sit there and you're, like, the brewers and the reds they have the same record and then you're like wait that's not bad (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) weird season i mean good i think a lot of it is is fun and good but some of it is profoundly strange you know Mm -hmm. i guess that's what happens when expectations get flipped on their heads yeah Yeah. it it, you know some of those some of those names you named i'm less surprised and then some of them it's like weird it's weird Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. it's a weird thing so
1: and then i'll Mm. i'll give you the guys uh, who have been better than expected yeah which is uh, less depressing to talk about. So so the number one player who is uh, outperforming his projections thus far is Geraldo Perdomo of the Diamondbacks, yeah. who is uh, 2.3 war ahead of his projected pace through this That's point of the season. That's right. Yep. Luke Rayleigh of the Rays is at 2.1 above. TJ Friedel of the Reds is at 2 war above. And then Shohei Otani, yeah. like, I, I named three players there who were fairly obscure heading into this right. season, right? And, and they've all been great, and, and that is great. But also Shohei Otani, who I think had the highest war projection coming into the season, if you add up his uh, pitching and hitting projections, and yet... He is still number four on the list of overperformers, despite how highly he was expected to perform. So he is still two WAR ahead of his better than anyone in baseball projected pace. <laughs> then you have Adolis Garcia, who is uh, also yeah. two WAR ahead.
0: What a, what a yeah. nice, what a nice season that guy is yeah, having.
1: It really has been. Yeah. Corbin Carroll, who
0: yeah. is, uh, t-
1: two WAR ahead, and Zach Gallen. Back-to-back, back. Yeah. Zach Gallen 1.8, and obviously we thought Zach Gallen was good, so he's been really good to exceed the projections. And then Ezekiel Duran mentioned earlier, and Ronald Acuna, who also had a great projection and has still exceeded it by 1.7 more through this point. Then Kevin Gossman, J.D. Davis, Bryce Elder, Sonny Gray, Lamont Wade Jr., Justin Steele, all these guys are at like one and a half WAR or, or more, and then Mickey Moniak. I guess uh, those are probably the the notable ones. Uh, Yenir Cano is uh, up there too for a reliever, which is impressive. He's one point four WAR ahead of the pace, as is Brandon Marsh, as is Nathan Navaldi, as is Jamer Candelario. As is Mitch Keller. I was sort of surprised that Yandi is not higher on this list. He's uh, actually only like 0.7 WAR ahead of the pace, I guess, because of base running and defense, maybe. And we're looking at WAR here, not just WRC plus, which would be a somewhat different list. But these are names that have uh, surprised us. Not a surprising list of names given what we've seen, but certainly would have been if uh, I had showed this list to you <laughs> before the. The season started and told you how good Gerardo Perdomo and Luke Raley and T.J. Friedel were going to be.
0: Friedel, Friedel. Um, I, I I don't know. He has such a, There's just like nice musicality to that name. I don't know yeah. what about it gets me. Um, did But you saw that Yandy Diaz is, is an all-star, an all-star starter. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he is premium ground beef.
1: Yes, yes he is.
0: is that anything? I don't know. We're going to keep trying with this until <laughs> we land on something we really like. I really hope Corbin
1: Carroll's okay. (laughs) Me too. Yeah. So that's our snapshot of where we stand exactly halfway through the season. And. I guess the things I'm looking forward to in the second half are largely related to the things we just talked about enjoying in the first half. Like, will this continue? What will the trade deadline look like with this great jumble of teams, this amorphous mass of contenders? So that's one of my things I'm looking forward to. And just, like, will any of these teams that just have not clicked yet, will any of them? Like, will one of the Mets and Cardinals and Padres, please stand up. Like, will they get any better over the second half of the season? Obviously, that's something I'm intrigued by. Arise, I'm not even giving it a, a high enough probability that that I would list it here. Like obviously if he stays somewhere near 400, that will continue to be one of the most interesting storylines of the season, but who knows how long he can keep that up. Obviously Otani will always be my number one, my writer dies. So he will be at the top of the list of, of uh, storylines of the season that I will be following most closely. Can he get to 12 war or something ridiculous like that? He's uh, just competing against himself at this point, more or less. So, I guess those are the things I'm I'm really looking forward to just seeing how this jumble of contenders sorts itself out.
0: Every time you talk about Otani now, I hear Always Be My Baby by Mariah Carey playing in the (laughs) background. It's like my internal soundtrack while you're talking about him. (laughs) That's nice. (laughs) I want to see if you can hit the high notes, Ben. Let's do it.
1: (laughs) I've got a good falsetto. All right. So uh, let us know if we missed anything obvious or that you have been most intrigued by this season. Anything we've given short shrift. We talk about so many things that I hope that we've hit on the notable things at some point on this podcast. But uh, let us know if you think we've neglected anything or or should be rating anything more highly.
0: Well, I mean, every time... Every time we do one of these, I feel like we end up hearing in a way that is very cool about, like, some maybe not notable, maybe a story that, like, we're forgiven for not knowing because of our scope. But, like, you know, I feel like almost every club has something that has happened that is, like, kind of driving some part of fan interest. And so, yeah, I enjoy hearing those stories because we miss out on them when we're, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to monitor all 30 plus the minors, plus... You know, we have dedicated Otani coverage. It's just a, it's a lot to juggle. So if we've we've missed one, let us know. Yeah. We want to hear about your your fun. You can tell us about the not fun stuff too. I don't mean to yeah. you know, but mm-hmm. like particularly if there are cool cool little bits and bobs we've missed, let us know
1: yeah we often do an episode or two at the very end of the calendar year, and then we solicit uh, what did we miss? So what should we talk about? But if there's something we should be paying attention to that is happening now <laughs> before the season ends, then then please uh, Clue us into that. And uh, I guess just one follow-up from last time we talked uh, on our email episode, we answered one about Arise and about a play that one of our listeners, uh, Bobby, Patreon supporter, thought was uh, sort of suspicious, sort of fishy, generous scoring to give Arise a hit on that play. And I corresponded with one of our listeners who's an official scorer and we went back and forth and he explained that it wasn't really anything unusual, uh, no conspiracy theory, no smoking gun here that MLB is trying to put its thumb on the scale and help Arise hit 400. But Bobby, the Patreon supporter, he wrote in in response to a David Laurella tweet, which was uh, about a Joey Wendell play he reached on a ground ball single. And Laurella mentioned that official scores rarely charge. Errors anymore, he said. And Bobby was wondering, he said, I I wrote earlier about what I thought was a questionable scoring decision based on the Red Sox radio reaction to a Luis Arise hit on June 28th. Bent sent some helpful links and really helpful comments from an official score. It really helped me realize that it's not so cut and dried. Today, David tweets, this official scores rarely charge errors anymore. I'm sorry, but I think I missed the memo about this at the beginning of the season. It's hard to believe that this is really happening. But then I've seen a few strange things recently, including last night's Arise hit that have caused me to wonder, was there any guidance given by MLB to scorers to lean away from charging errors? What would happen if we just got rid of errors, counting them at all? It feels like we are starting on that path. Obviously, they would still happen and we would have to change the scoreboards and box scores. What else could we count? We talked about how we could replace errors in the line score with something else recently. But I think error rates uh, have declined a a bit relative to earlier errors. Errors, not errors. I don't think that we have suddenly seen errors stop this season, but there have been some changes that have had an impact on just the way that appeals happen and the way things are are scored. And I will read a another question that we got just recently because it pertains to this. Listener Jack said, "I was wondering if it would make sense to use defensive metrics like outs above average or something similar to quantify errors." instead of the scorekeeper just kind of going, I just feel like that was an error. Set a limit at something like 90% catch probability for fly balls, let's say, and if that out is not made, it scored an error, does that make sense? And I sent that to our official score listener, and he said, and I didn't really know this, hit and catch probability are used as references currently, and I would speculate that they will be used more in the future. During the appeals process, these statistics are used as well as exit velocity to justify positions. I would say these are included in the scoring decisions, but MLB is getting more and more of this information available and getting scores comfortable applying these data points. I feel it is included today, but mostly referenced in the appeals process. It's something all scores are very aware of, but MLB has not pushed for this to be the only metric for the decision process, just another tool to assist. So that's interesting because I, I mentioned they've made an effort to sort of standardize scoring decisions and also eliminate some of the, the hometown bias. It's almost like umpires getting graded Based on their zone evaluation system, based on you know pitch FX and, and Statcast, right? And they're not yet using those systems to call balls and strikes, but they're giving umpires feedback and they're being evaluated based on how they conform to that data. So it's sort of similar, I guess, that official scores now are referencing these stats and keeping them in mind. And if there is an appeal filed, then. It's a data point that could be brought to bear here to justify, say, changing a, a hit to an error or vice versa. So, I was not really aware that that was happening, but that is happening.
0: Yeah, me either.
1: Yeah. So, I don't know if you can fully just use that only and take the human element out of this. I, I guess there are certain things – I don't know. It's always like some errors that are just uh, assessed as hits instead of errors because it's like – it touched someone's glove and they bobbled it versus they just completely missed it or it got lost in the sun or something. I I guess you could kind of quantify that with outs above average with catch probability. You don't necessarily need to know how or why they didn't catch it. It's just they didn't catch it. So therefore, it's an error. I guess you could do it programmatically that way. Or you could just get rid of errors entirely at that point right like do we do we even need to have an algorithm assign errors or can we just Away with them entirely and just move past earned runs. Uh, you know, teams are are certainly looking at like expected stats already. It's not like ERA is is really affecting a player's earning potential probably anymore. Teams are already looking at metrics like these. Though I guess there's a case for keeping them just for statistical consistency across eras.
0: I think that there's probably still some value in just like let's assume like think of your just mentally. Imagine you're sort of like, it's weird to describe an error in terms of a platonic ideal, I realize, but like, you know, your prototypical error, textbook, Mm -hmm. easy, you know, the first thing you show an official score when you're like doing the training and then you graduate to harder stuff, right? So Mm -hmm. pick that. We probably do want to distinguish instances where a a batter runner (laughs) (laughs) reaches as a result of that versus a a hit right we probably do want to make distinctions between those moments right
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i think so so we need
0: some mechanism and i i am nervous about ceding it entirely to the the vagaries of the algo because i Mm -hmm. think that that's confusing to people you know Mm -hmm. i think that part of what you're when you're building sort of the scoring or rule structure of a sport like accessibility and, and understandability, comprehensibility is the word mm-hmm. I actually want, on the part of people watching is important to sort of the perceived legitimacy of those rule and, and scoring structures. And yeah. so having it purely be this thing that like we can talk about and that we do have some insight into, but that is inscrutable to a lot of people is probably not, to the benefit of the sport, in terms of us being like, yeah, we get that. Mm-hmm. And of course, like the human element introduces va- sort of variability around that yeah, question, as too. So, by these
1: emails, that exactly. causes confusion, so it's, too. <laughs>
0: it's not like it's perfect. And I think adjusting the slider up and down in terms of how much influence the one versus the other has is like a worthwhile conversation. But we probably don't want it to only be that because then it's, Mm-hmm. You know, it's tricky. I think this is part of why, in addition to them not being as good, in fairness, but this is part of the reason that the sort of defensive side of war has always been viewed a little more skeptically than the offensive side because it's just harder to be like, well, but is that right? You know, and mm-hmm. how do you do? And so, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I'm just going to say a lot of half sentences and then have people like <laughs> blend it together like magnetic poetry. <laughs>
1: yeah. And our official score. Contact also said that there have been some changes to the appeals process about a decade ago, like 2012, uh, there was more standardization and a new appeals process in response to some player complaints during the previous CBA talks. But there's an update now. He says now it's even more streamlined for players and agents. Players have an app that allows them to directly appeal. So a lack of changes now is due more to in-game oversight and support that was not utilized or available in the past. There are more eyes, more feedback in-game to help scores make decisions than ever before. It's designed to make sure rules are applied correctly and give oversight for consistency across the league. So there's an app for that. Now, if you think that you should have gotten a hit instead of an error, then you can just appeal it on an app. And I wondered, I asked... Whether he had any idea what percentage of appeals are successful and if that's changed over time, because I don't think that data is public. You can see the record of classifications that were changed, but you can't necessarily see all the ones that were appealed that there were no changes. So. He said since the process has started, appeals have generally been stable with perhaps a slight uptick. It's easier to do now if you have an app (laughs) and there's no penalty, I guess, to trying. So why not try? Probably if someone was appealing every single call that went against them, that, that might be frowned upon. But he said overturns have also been at consistent rates with maybe a slight reduction in recent years due to these new measures. The current appeals committee is composed entirely of X players. They have the players' best interests in mind. Both former hitters and former pitchers are on the committee and give feedback. I believe the players are comfortable knowing that guys who played the game are giving an oversight to this process and the ultimate decision. In my personal opinion, I believe current players are at least satisfied. With the process. So it seems like it's gotten better on the whole from what we can tell. There's uh, more standardization and oversight and consistency, and I guess recourse uh, if you disagree with a decision. So those all seem like good things. Yeah. And of course, MLB is uh, very concerned about uh, gambling and betting and wagering, right? And so I think maybe that's part of this drive, right? To just make the scoring process more uniform and transparent so that uh, the people who you are enticing to bet on baseball are not mad because there was some wacky scoring decision that seems like it's inconsistent. So I guess that's a good thing that can come out of something that we're less interested in <laughs> anyway we will end with a future blast oh how appropriate given that i was just talking about betting on sports i was wondering when we would get to one of these <laughs>
0: 2027
1: you bet and new trop in 2027 the las vegas a's curious fourth game loss in the alcs when a three-run lead evaporated through five straight bases on balls, reminded MLB that the sport had been dancing on the edge of the gambling precipice for years. The investigation into A's players and coaches with worrisome Las Vegas relationships went on for more than a year, resulting in several coaching suspensions and a half dozen multi-game suspensions for players for inappropriate relationships with known gamblers. Even the robo-ump system was under investigation, with the possibility that the game videos were hacked in the few seconds it took from the challenge being raised to the video being watched or the data being reviewed. As a result, MLB issued a Rule 21 reminder to all the players and coaches and cited pitch-by-pitch betting as a matter of special concern. In the midst of these worries, the astounding base running success of sprinter Twanisha T.T. Terry proved that the designated runner was a wide open door for women baseball players. As Major League Baseball adopted the new rule for the 2027 season and Terry progressed from the Bowling Green Hot Rods to the Montgomery Biscuits to the Durham Bulls and in September to the Tampa Bay Rays, amassing an incredible 153 stolen bases in all. She won the inaugural Golden Spike Awards for base stealing and did it in front of larger crowds than usual for the Rays, who enjoyed some honeymoon attendance in their new 30,000-seat ballpark, averaging 22,232 for the season at an all-time high, though that still left the Rays in 20th place in average home attendance. (laughs) First, of course, were the Dodgers, (laughs) averaging their usual 47,000-plus, followed by the Cardinals and the Yankees, averaging their usual 42,000-plus. So, I guess we've got some bad news and we've got some good news when it comes to baseball in 2027.
0: (laughs) How about that?
1: (laughs) Although, we might need a, a different name for that award, the, the Golden Spike Award. That's that's taken, right? we Right. It's your best amateur baseball player in the United States. So it might cause some confusion. I don't want to tell the, the future award namers how to do their jobs. But uh, if we're bestowing Golden Spikes Awards on amateur players, maybe we need a, a different name for the sprinters and the base runners.
0: You heard it here first. Ben is a fan of college baseball, you know? <laughs> It's not exactly what
1: I said. I, I'm All aware right. of the existence of it, but
0: yeah. uh-huh. sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes.
1: Sometimes. Well, after we finished recording, I'd say trade season officially started. The Royals traded Aroldis Chapman to the Texas Rangers, which seemed like an obvious fit. Doesn't seem like the Royals got the greatest return, given that they're dealing maybe the best relief arm on the market and well before the deadline to boot. But that does kind of kick off deadline season. And it also makes me wonder who the heck is going to be the Royals all-star this year. Because <laughs> without Chapman, man, slim Pickens. If Granky gets added to the roster as a legendary player like Albert Pujols and Miguel Cabrera were last Year, does that count? Or do you have to have a non-honorary all-star? Because I do not know who it would be. Salvi's well-known. I guess you could give it to him. Bobby Witt Jr., Michael Garcia, whoever it is will wear. I read a new kind of uniform, not just a new design for the all-star uniforms, but a new uniform technology called Nike Vapor Premier, which will debut in the all-star game and will be used by all teams beginning in 2024, which sounds like good news if you're into ogling baseball players. According to the MLB.com piece, Vapor Premier's breathable light. Weight high-performance fabric is made from at least 90% recycled polyester yarns. It also gives the jersey 25% more stretch and allows it to dry 28% faster with moisture-wicking dry-fit ADV technology keeping players cool. Sounds like the opposite of George Costanza's cotton uniforms. But here's the key sentence. Nike body-scanned more than 300 baseball players to find the ideal fit which is more athletic and form-fitting than previous models. Ooh la la. So there's a reason to tune in. You can be warm for their forms, and their forms will be less warm because of that moisture-wicking technology. You can also support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going. Help us stay ad-free and get themselves access to some perks. Maddie T., Kyle W., Ryan Young, Dalton Hartman, and Chris. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group, access to monthly bonus podcasts, including a library of twenty that are sitting there for you right now, waiting to be listened to. You also get access to playoff live streams and discounts on merch and ad-free fangrafts memberships and so much more. Patreon.com slash effectively wild If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site, and anyone and everyone can email us at podcast at fangrass.com. Send us your questions and comments. Send us your Effectively Wild theme song if you want to record one that can be added to our intro and outro rotation. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. Happy Canada Day to those of you who celebrate. We'll be back, I believe, before July 4th. But we hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will talk to you early next week. Romantic, pedantic,
0: and hypothetical, semantic and- theoretical. They give you the stats and they give you the news. It's a baseball podcast you should choose. Effectively Wild is here for you about all the weird stuff that players do. Authentically strange and objectively styled. Let's play ball. It's Effectively Wild. It's Effectively Wild. It's Effectively Wild. A siren just started? Oh
1: yeah, I hear this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. That's just so after I hit record. That's so funny.
1: <laughs> Sirens are usually on my end.
0: Yeah, geez. I hope everything's okay. Um, all right, well, here we go. Let me try that again. Hello and welcome to